this morning, as I hope I do every time I stand before the Lord's people, I have just a simple message on my mind. The world in its wisdom thinks that men have to say fancy things and word things in a special way in order for the gospel to be preached. But the truth of the matter is the gospel is just a simple message. And the truth of the matter is if that simple message is not enough for you, then you don't want the gospel. <laughs> you want entertainment or you want something that keeps you awake or that engages your attention. And the problem with that way of thinking is it is each one of our responsibility to prepare our hearts and minds to hear the word of God preached. It's not the job of the preacher to engage us and to turn a phrase fancy enough to make us want to pay attention. We need to come ready to hear that simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so this morning... That's the subject that I have on my mind in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2, the Apostle Paul spends quite a bit of time on that very fact. I've often wondered why he didn't just make one statement and then move on. And then I got older and got to looking around more and seeing my own mind and the way it works. We're kind of dull-headed and we don't get the point. And we try to argue with the Lord. That doesn't go so well for us. And in that arguing with the Lord, we think, well, yes, Lord, that's right, but it's different now. There is an idea in some folks' minds that the gospel's too old of a message that we've got to update it. That science and medicine has shown us things that we didn't know before. And so we've got to update the message because it's obviously antiquated and too old. Well, there's not a good scientific response to that other than this fact. Good science always proves the Bible. The Bible's never been proven wrong in science, in medicine, in astronomy, in archaeology. Time and time again, eventually men have to bow down and say, yep, the Lord was right. His word is true. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about that simple message. It's simple content and the simple way that we are to deliver it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is going to kind of overlap where we've spoken to you before in verse 17. But you know the way the Apostle Paul does an argument. He presents a case and that opens up another case and opens up another case. So we're in the middle of one of those points of discussion. Verse 17 says, For Christ sent me not to baptize. We talked about that a few weeks ago and description that baptism is not the cause of our eternal salvation. Baptism is not the cause of our regeneration. Baptism is a recognition of the finished work of Jesus Christ. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. We're going to keep going in just a second, but that's really the theme of this morning. That we are called to preach the gospel but not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. If the effort of preaching the gospel is anything other than delivering the simple message that the born-again child of God can rejoice in, then we have said that the cross of Christ wasn't sufficient. If we have to intellectually prove things to people, then we're saying that Christ's death on the cross was not sufficient to save. I don't believe that. 
I think it was sufficient to save. And I think the message of the gospel and its simplicity is enough to explain it. No matter what a person adds when they say, but this, well, Christ on the cross. Well, what about this? Christ on the cross. Regardless of what argument people come up with, their arguments are based in human wisdom, and the Bible says they're wrong. Popular opinion might like them. But the Lord Jesus Christ was not popular with the world. Neither were his disciples. And so if I preach a message that most of the world likes to hear, I am not preaching Christ and him crucified. Let's look into this. He says, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. The Apostle Paul sets this argument up, as Elder Michael Goins puts it, are you going to believe Christ or are you going to believe Socrates? Are you going to believe Christ or are you going to believe fill in the blank with whatever philosopher or intelligent person that is so respected in the world. Paul says that there is the power of God in this, and that is not discovered by book knowledge. That is not discovered by being smarter than somebody else. And so this morning we want to explore as to how that is discovered. I'm going to answer the question to start with so that you know where I'm going and there's no question about it. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Now, I thank you, Lord, for my King James Bible. Almost all modern translations say those that are being saved. That's not what it says. This is talking about a people that are already born again, children of God, unto us that which are saved. The church at Corinth was not a whole bunch of people that were unregenerate, not disciples of Christ. They were regenerate, regenerate born again, children of God that were once good disciples that had been messing up stuff. And so Paul is writing to these disciples to get their minds straight again. He's not writing this to cause them to get born again. He said, us that are saved. And so what we're headed for this morning is the purpose of the preaching of the gospel is to save those that are already saved. What is it going to save them from? All of the problems at Corinth that they thought in their minds, well, we've got to add to this. Yeah, Paul, you were right a few years ago when you said Jesus saved us and it's a done deal. But since then, we've discovered these philosophies of the Greeks. And so we need to figure out how to make those work in because those were some smart fellows. Just because a person can sound extremely intelligent, we need to understand the simple proverb that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those that do not fear the Lord don't have the wisdom we need. And so what we're looking at today is that the simple message of Jesus Christ paid it all is a sufficient message because he did pay it all. He declared, it is finished. He declared, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He did die of a melted heart, just like it says in the Psalms, that his reins were consumed within him. And he did die for our sins. But he also raised. I'm going to put it to you plainly. If the death of Jesus Christ was not sufficient, he would still be in the grave. 
If the death of Jesus Christ took your will or my will or your works or my works, then we'd all be out there still trying to dig him up. But the fact of the matter is, three days later, he rose from the dead, God declaring that he agreed with the Son that it is finished. And he declared, you righteous, based upon what he did, not what you have done, and thank the Lord for that. I'm in that you as well. Because as soon as we get to thinking we deserve the salvation of the Lord, Here's the problem with that. Paul put it in a simple statement. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. If you don't see yourself a sinner, then you can't see Jesus as Savior. If you think you can make yourself equal to God, that's the problem that was happening at Corinth. Because I want you to notice what he says here. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. To the world, this is a foolish message. Paul's going to expand on that. If we've got time, we'll get into that. But unto us which are saved, those that have the Holy Ghost dwelling in them, that simple message rings true that Jesus did it all. And that I can rest in that. On thy dear cross I fix my eyes, but they don't stay there. Every system of salvation that teaches man's got to do something doesn't get past the cross. That's a glorious place to be. But that old song says, On thy dear cross I fix my eyes, then raise them to thy seat. Jesus Christ is not on the cross trying to save. We are saved. So let's raise them to his seat. (laughs) Let's set our eyes higher than the cross. Now, If you feel prideful, you need to get your eyes on the cross and know why he's there. But if you see him as your Savior, get your eyes up higher. Folks, he's not there anymore. And that's the simple message. Paul's argument, though, here is that why this message doesn't make sense to those that perish, those that are dead in sins is what he is describing. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Paul is quoting out of Isaiah chapter 29. If you want to go ahead and be turning there, I want to go look at it. Because, first of all, there is something very very important in the historical setting of why Paul is quoting this. Paul wrote this in 60-something A.D. Less than a decade later, Rome is going to take Jerusalem. And so many of the things the Apostle Paul is going to say toward the Jews is a natural warning to them as well. And we need to understand how and why it is that God would hide things in such a way. Now, as Brother Bobby likes to tell us, if God hides something, can't nobody find it. How is it that he hid it? Did he hide it to be cruel? Or is it hidden in such a way that the only way it can be found out is if God reveals it in them? I think it's the latter, and I want to prove that to you. Back to Isaiah chapter 29. Aria. That is a word that means lion. It is talking about Jerusalem. And this is a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. In particular, it is a prophecy of 70 A.D. Hope to show that to you by the context of what's here. And I think it's important that we understand why Paul quotes this from here, because it relates to it directly. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Interesting phrase. 
Jerusalem's going on year after year after year, offering sacrifices, being quite proud of their abilities and their understanding of the old law. But the Bible within the Old Testament, within Isaiah, is going to say, in vain you do offer these things. That's what's being described here. Is you have Jerusalem, the city where God set his name, is going through religious motion and forgetting what it means. They offer a sacrifice thinking that that bull or that goat or that lamb has saved them. Actually, they're not even thinking that. They're thinking their offering of that lamb has saved them, something that they did. Sound familiar to a will worship? <laughs> Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And I will camp against thee round about, and I will lay siege against thee with a mount, and I will raise forts against thee. Woo! This happened a few times in Israel's history. Because of its location high upon Mount Zion, and because it was a fortified city with walls, it wasn't like an army could just walk up to it and start attacking it. Every single time Jerusalem had to be attacked, they had to lay siege to it. One of those times was Sennacherib and the Assyrian army. They came and they laid siege. This was done in the time of King Hezekiah. So go read about it. They failed. As a matter of fact, Hezekiah prayed. Hezekiah made a mistake first. He paid tribute to him, trying to get him to stop. He tried to pay off a bully. Kids, don't pay off bullies. Turn to the Lord. Because <laughs> here's what happened. Hezekiah turned to the Lord. Angel came down and 1,985,000 Assyrians were killed. <laughs> What's funny about that is if you even check Wikipedia on lists of battles, they always have the strength of each army that's there, their location, who their generals were, and it lists it straight out like the Bible. And then when it lists the casualties of war, on Jerusalem's side, there's zero. And on the enemy's side, there's 185,000. <laughs> there was another time. Babylon. The Chaldeans came and laid siege. They succeeded. But we're going to see some evidence in this that this is not talking about Babylon. Let's read on. And thou shalt be brought down, and shalt speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be low out of the dust, and thy voice shall be as of one that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. This is talking about this siege works. Whoever's attacking them now, the people are brought so low that they're just mumbling along like there's something wrong with them. They're completely incoherent because they're a defeated people. Moreover, the multitude of the strangers shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones shall be as the chaff that passeth away. Yea, it shall be at an instant suddenly. Babylon conquered in stages. They sent a large army, but nothing described like this. This isn't talking about Babylon. Plus, it's going to talk about some disappointment of the soldiers. Babylon went away with the gold. They weren't disappointed. This group, though, is described like the dust of the earth. That's none other army than Titus and Vespasian. And they sieged it for a time. But as soon as it says, they, I'm going to build mounts, by the way, can God use a wicked country to purge his people? Yes, and he does. Not just can he do it, he does do it. America needs to wake up about that. The Lord blessed us to rid the world of some evil men in World War I and in World War II. We turned evil instead and we got Vietnam. 
God wasn't with us in that. Could have been, but we were an ungodly nation. Run by ungodly men fighting a war in an ungodly way. But we have this. Let's read on. They they had this mounts built up against it, which means they had some kind of engines where they built towers round about and they could shoot arrows in and did a lot of destruction. But when Vespasian decided to invade, it was fast because there was nothing left. There wasn't anybody left to defend. Um, As horrible as it was, there was cannibalism going on so greatly in Jerusalem at the time that the number of people had been greatly diminished by their own hand, not by the hands of the enemy. It was a horrible time. Thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and with great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. They burnt everything down. Does that mean God liked Assyria or Babylon or Rome? No. His people were being wrong. And so he purges them. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, even all that fight against her and her munition and that distresser shall be as a dream of a night vision. This is an interesting thing that happens here. There's two possibilities of what this is talking about, and I actually think they're both true. One of them is this is like the Jews in the middle of a dream. The other one is as their attackers, the Roman army, in the middle of a dream. I'm going to present the dream to you, then I'm going to explain why it can be both. It shall be, it shall even be as when an hungry man dreameth, and beholdeth, behold, he eateth, but he awaketh, and his soul is empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreameth, and behold, he drinketh, but he awaketh, and behold, he is faint, and his soul hath appetite, so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. It's like a dream. If you go to sleep hungry, you dream about eating sometimes. And you eat and eat and eat, and then you wake up, See, what's interesting is your body, in that dream, your mind convinces your body that you're eating. And so it starts all those digestive processes. And so when you wake up, you're even more hungry (laughs) because your body didn't have anything to digest. Same thing with thirst. And so what's being described here is the person that dreams and they have want and desire of something. And in their dream, they think they got it, but they wake up to the reality there's nothing First of all, from the Jewish perspective, these folks had so fooled themselves. The rulers of the Jews and the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees had so fooled themselves that they dug in deeper and deeper and deeper against Rome. And then when the Messiah came on the scene, they dug in deeper and deeper and deeper and refused to recognize that Jesus was the Christ, but all the while thought, we're going to be delivered from Rome. They were living a dream. 70 AD happened. They woke up and they were gone. And folks, Israel will never be there again. How do I know that? Because the Bible says it. Natural Israel pointed towards spiritual Israel. And so to have the idea that natural Israel is going to set up as a world power again, it's not going to happen. Seems to me that it would happen in the past 80 years after we set up a man-made Jerusalem again. But all that's done is caused what? Wars after wars after wars. All that's done is kill more people. That's not the kingdom of God. That's not the kingdom of Christ. So from a Jewish perspective, they have a dream. We're the people of God. We're Abraham's children. God will certainly deliver us. You know, we've been looking at it on Wednesday night. Well, that was the claim of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. We have Abraham as our father. And Jesus says, if Abraham was your father, then you'd act like Abraham. 
Jesus said, you're acting like your father, the devil. They attributed the miracles of Jesus, in particular the healing of a man on the Sabbath day, to be from Beelzebub himself, rather than a clear evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. See, when a person is dead in sins and is following after the thinking of the world, even clear evidence sitting in front of them will confuse them. Are you seeing how God blinds? They refuse the simple fact that Jesus is the Son of God, and so nothing that Jesus does makes sense. But if Jesus is the Son of God, <laughs> everything makes sense. It's easy. It's a simple message. Then there's the other perspective, and I think it more leans toward this. And that is these soldiers are desiring. I mean, they had heard about in history, when Babylon came and took Jerusalem, the riches that they had taken away, the vessels of gold and silver, all the jewels and the treasuries of the temple. These soldiers, because back then, the soldiers got the spoils of war, generals got their big portion. But then if you fought in a battle, you got to take stuff. So in their dream, I'm going to be filled with the riches. But see, here's the deal. The church was already gone out of Jerusalem. There were no riches there, either spiritual or earthly. They had all been wasted up by these unbelievers by these false teachers, so that when they came in, they got into the temple and there was nothing there. It was so insignificant, it certainly could not provide the riches that an army like the dust of the earth would want. Here's the evidence that God was involved in the matter. Both sides were disappointed. <laughs> the Jews' dream of deliverance didn't happen. The Roman dream of riches didn't happen. God just wanted it gone. Oh. Would you like to be in that condition where God just wants you or where you're at gone? But you know what? God never destroyed an area without warning. You know that even with the, the, the wicked nations around Israel. Look, look at how God did things. There were prophets in the Old Testament that didn't prophesy to Judah. They prophesied to Edom. Why? God gave them a chance to quit being foolish. <laughs> they didn't take it. God destroyed them. God's not going to surprise people in this regard. God's judgment comes. And it comes, sure, but it doesn't come without warning. And so we read on. Verse 9, stay yourselves and wonder. Cry ye out and cry. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep and hath closed your eyes. And the prophets, excuse me, the prophets and your rulers, the seers, hath he covered. They are so confused that they look like they're drunk. Or they look like a blind man walking around. Think back to John chapter 9. You've got a man that was born blind. He's an adult. Jesus heals him. And he is rejoicing. Every time somebody asks him about it, he says, well, I don't know. The guy put clay on my eyes. He told me to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I came seeing. Well, who was he? I don't know. How did he do it? I, really, I told you how he did it. He said, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. Folks, that's the simple gospel message. It's not I was blind, and I went looking for the Lord to get to see. He didn't go looking for the Lord. The Lord found him. He didn't call out to the Lord. The Lord called out to him. What a wonderful picture of grace we have in this man. And so this blind man can now see but they bring him before the Pharisees, 
And this blind man says, in all the history that you fellas know, has it ever been that somebody that was born blind was made to see? You know what their answer was? They covered their eyes and they kicked him out. <laughs> this is it. This is what Isaiah was prophesying about. It happened in the days of Christ. Christ came among them in power and they refused it. Verse 11. <clears throat> and the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. Something common about those two groups. Neither one of them would read it. Let me ask you this. God did testify by the mouth of Malachi that he was going to stop speaking to Israel until the one came in the spirit and power of Elijah, right? So revelation did stop. But did God take that Old Testament book and take it away from Israel? No. God never sealed the law. God never sealed the prophets so that the men couldn't read. This is a lie. This is a lame excuse. So, and it's sealed up. We can't understand. You know why it's sealed up and they can't understand? Because they chose to believe their own commentaries and to believe their contemporaries rather than believing the Word of God. And so they said the Messiah, he's going to be one that will deliver us from the Roman army. Jesus Christ did, but he didn't deliver Israel like they wanted. They wanted to be set up as the world power again and be in charge of everything in that area and around the world. And so they wrote that way and they interpreted old scripture that way. And so when the truth came, they said, oh, it's sealed up. We can't understand this. But there was a man named Simeon. He was a priest, wasn't he? He was there when Jesus was brought in on the eighth day of his life. And this was a man that was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What kind of consolation was he looking for? Well, when they handed him that babe, he said, I have seen thy salvation. Lord, you can take me home. He knew that it wasn't a great army or a great general that he was looking for. He was looking for God's son to come and to save him. That's the consolation. These men were not looking for that consolation. They wanted to be reestablished to the power and the prestige and the presence that they had. And so they say, I can't read it for it is sealed. You ever heard the phrase, can't see the forest for the trees? It means you, you, there's so many things there that you can't really tell what's there. There were so many writings that the Jews were using at that time that they couldn't tell what was true and what wasn't true. So you get half of Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7 with Jesus making the statement, Ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time. He's talking about all their writings. This is what has blinded you. This is what has made it where you think the truth is sealed up. And you know, it's not any different now. If you mention grace to somebody that thinks that it was their decision that saved them, it's, it's like a book sealed up. So well, where's my will in that? Well, <laughs> the Bible does speak about the will of man. And it's not a single positive statement ever made about the will of man. It says the carnal mind is enmity toward God. That's an utter enemy. Our will, without Christ acting first, would never bring us back to Christ. It is not of him that willeth, 
nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. And then you've got, well, okay, let's take it to the unlearned. Well, the unlearned listen to the learned. And if they can't read it, I certainly can't read it. I'm not learned. See, the folks there at Jerusalem were under a bondage of their religious leaders that told them they're not allowed to think for themselves. I know there's a video recorder going on right now, but I've already been taken out behind the woodshed for making this statement enough before. I have had that bondage in my life where there are preachers that say, you can't understand the Bible on your own. You have to believe it the way we say it and don't question us. That was amongst the old Baptists. That's the bondage of the Pharisees. That's the bondage of old Jerusalem. That's wrong. I encourage you to read your Bible. I encourage you to ask questions. I encourage you to show me that if I've got something wrong, you prove it to me by the Bible, I'm going to amen you, and I'm going to go with what you say because I want God glorified. I don't want to just be right, the one that's seen as right and the one that has all knowledge. I know I don't. But that's what happened to the unlearned people. <laughs> well, our leaders don't know, so we certainly can't know. That's not true. It's a simple message. Jesus did it all. Wherefore the Lord said, for as much as, here we go. <laughs> now we're getting to what Paul quoted. You see all the history of it? It was Jerusalem who had been blessed of God. They had been taken captivity before. They had repented. God had delivered them. But it got down to this point where they're utterly rejecting the word of God. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and the, their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. There's the key. Outwardly, their religious ceremony looked exactly the same. They had all of the rote prayers. They said the right things going into the temple. They were doing the right sacrifices and everything. But what they forgot, well, let me just ask you this. You remember when Jesus died and there was that great earthquake? What happened in the temple? You remember? Temple veil was rent in twain, wasn't it? That veil divided the holiest from the holiest of holies, where God's presence was. When that veil tore open, what was behind that veil? Nothing. What were they doing with all of that blood? There was no mercy seat in Jerusalem. The representation of the Savior of God had long since been lost to the Jews, but they were continually going through the ceremony. The veil was rent in twain showing that there's access to God now. But what it also showed is the Jews were worshiping in vain. The sacrifices had no mercy seat to go to. Because the true mercy seat is Jesus Christ. And they were missing the point. So God took that visual thing away from them. He did that time and time again. You remember when there was those folks, they got bit by the serpents in the wilderness. So what did they do? They made a brazen serpent on a stick, and the people that got bit looked at it. A little while later, those folks started worshiping that snake on a stick. And so what did they do with it? They destroyed it. <laughs> we don't need symbols. We need Christ. We don't need other stories. We don't need philosophies. We need Christ. Their heart is removed from me. And notice this. Their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. I've got that underlined in red in my Bible. And that wasn't an accident that I put it in red. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That means proper fear gives us knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Proper fear gives us wisdom of the power of God. 
But these people were afraid because of the precept of men. They were threatened with obedience. Those that claim to preach the gospel that threaten, if you don't do it, then you lose it all. They're causing people to fear, but it's with the precept of men, not this. I know you fear the Lord, and I know why you fear the Lord. You know how bad a rotten, ugly, horrible sinner you are. And he died for you. I know in your mind right now and in your heart you feel thankful, but at the same time you're like, whoa, how great a God is this? That's the right fear. That's the honor and respect of a father, not a judge. False gospels present God as a judge to his people. That's what the Israelites were under. God was their father then. God is our father now. The gospel doesn't teach that God is the judge of his people. The gospel teaches that God judged the sins of his people in Jesus Christ and he put their sins away as far as the east is from the west. Simple. And he's our father. And we know what we deserve. And we didn't get that. Grace and mercy. You fear that Lord, don't you? But it's not one of terror. It is of awe and amazement. See, you can make people afraid. As old brother Dan Delmo over in the Philippines told us one Wednesday night. So you can scare people into following a law, but you can't scare them into loving the Lord. The right fear also loves. And dread is not love. You see what he's saying here? Jesus quotes this same area and he said, You have taught for doctrines the precepts of men. Jesus himself condemns this. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. And they say, Who seeth us, and who knoweth us? Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he had no understanding? And then it goes to talk about Lebanon. Here's the key. Lebanon ain't Jerusalem. The truth is going to go to the Gentiles. <laughs> but here's the deal of what happens right here. These leaders of the Jews had basically denied the power of God. And they said, we can do what we're wanting to do. And God doesn't know it. You know, there are people out there in the world today, probably some very prominent people, that we may not know their motivation behind things because they're really good at hiding them under different corporate names and offshore bank accounts and other ways of hiding things with lawyers. But God knows. This is declaring, God says, so I'm the one that made you. And I know how you tick. And you think I don't know what you're doing? You're like, I made this clay pot. I don't like it. Throw it up against the wall. That's how you are in comparison to me, God says. See, they thought they were something special. They even declared to John the Baptist, we have Abraham as our father. And how did John the Baptist respond? God is able to raise up stones unto Abraham. You know where they were when they said that? They were in the River Jordan. 
I think that was the stones that they set up when they went over that memorialized what God did, not what man did. Man didn't heap up the River Jordan. By the way, if you check a map, that's beyond the horizon where they heaped it up. And yet the writer said they heaped it up. That means that was a big heap. It was more than 15 miles away, and they could see a heap of water. That was a big heap of water. God did that. Those stones memorialized that. Those stones said, this is what God did. The gospel says, this is what God did. I love that. And anything that man does to pervert that, God will bring it into judgment. And on this occasion, he says, I'm going to Lebanon. Basically, that's, that's outside of Ariel. <laughs> Lebanon represents the Gentile world. What happened in the transition from the time that Jesus ascended to the destruction of Jerusalem, the gospel went to the Gentiles, including Corinth. There were some Jews there, but there were also Gentiles. It was all fulfilled. But God said, I'm going to do a marvelous thing. I'm going to hide it from their wise ones. I'm going to hide it from the prudent ones. Was this God being cruel so these folks can't get saved? No. God has always done it this way. And he shows, God always does things to an extreme. Israel could not brag about their power. God said, I chose you when you were the smallest nation, 70 folks, and made you the greatest nation. That shows that God gets the glory. So God takes the people that for over 2,000 years had his word. Nothing was hid from them. And so all that the human mind needed to understand about God, the human mind had it. And it didn't get through. Why? Let's go back and see. Paul explains to us how God did this. Back to 1 Corinthians. For the preaching of the cross to them that perish is foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Where are the Pharisees? Where are the guys that can write the law backwards and forwards and upside down and upside down and backwards? They could do that. Where is the disputer of this world? Where are those lawyers that can always argue we're right? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by the wisdom of God knew not God. Okay, don't get tricked up by that. I do sometimes. There's a lot of words there, but here's basically what it says. The world says you are saved by your ability to understand and accept. By worldly wisdom and understanding, you'll never come to the conclusion. Why? It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Remember, this is the saving of the saved. There's salvation in the gospel. It's salvation from error. What are the errors? For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Paul mentions three ethnic groups here. Jews, Greeks, and Christians. <laughs> That's not an ethnic group, but what he's saying is the world thinks in the terms of Jews and Greeks. He's like, I'm going to tell you about somebody else that's amongst both of them. Here's how they are blinded. The Jews required a sign. All of the time, they were requiring and asking for a sign. Jesus said, the only sign that you're given is the sign of the prophet Jonas. And they didn't believe. Resurrection from the dead. And they still don't believe. Because they required signs and wonders. Jesus did, well as John records, 
If he had written down everything that he saw, there wasn't enough ink to fill the oceans and where the skies of parchment made. <laughs> There's not a, a book that could contain it all. There was so much evidence done, so many signs done. And so God gave them all the signs that they required, and they didn't get it. Hath they not heard? Yea, their voice went into all the earth. It is not by intellectual reasoning of the gospel that we get a hope. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. Well, you need to prove it to me theoretically, then you need to prove it to me experientially. You've got to do all of these things. It has to sound scientific to me. Folks, I'm not going to ask you to not use your faith, but I did this on Wednesday night before. I'm just, just for a second, if you didn't have faith and somebody said God's going to become flesh, how much sense does that make to you? Absolutely none. What if then I said God's going to become flesh and he's going to die for your sins, you piece of scum? How foolish is that? There is nothing in the intellectual mind of man that, the, that Jesus Christ on the cross makes sense. But does it make sense to you? You're called. Something's inside you that says that's it. That's the wondrous thing that God has done. Is he did not reveal this to his people through signs and wonders. He did all the signs and wonders, and people refused it. He didn't do this through excellency of speech. There were tons of those. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross is sufficient. The simple message of the gospel is sufficient to save those that have that inward calling. Because that's the only way it makes sense. It's the only way. And that's, folks, how God can have a people. Every nation, kindred, tongue, and people throughout all time and all over the earth. As he did to every one of his children, just like he did to Peter. Blessed art thou, fill in your name. For flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you. It wasn't by signs and wonders. It wasn't by how smart you are or how good the preacher was or the article that you read. Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And you know why he did that? Because way back over in Jeremiah, he said, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with what? Loving kindness have I drawn thee. May the Lord bless you all is my prayer.